seated. And as you're seated, turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis. Uh, Starting Genesis 3.16 this morning. And finishing out of the first three chapters, which really are a unit as you read through the Bible, as you read through Genesis, you kind of take, hey, these three um, are a bigger unit with other subunits and stuff like that. So, but we're going to finish out chapter three as we continue to move ahead through this book. So Genesis chapter three, I'd encourage you to um, have your own paper Bible if you could. We do have paper Bibles out in the foyer if you'd like to pick one up. Um, but if you have a, a phone, you want to click over there or whatever you use, um, we'll be in Genesis 3.16 this morning. Well, today we want to talk about life's dif- difficulties, some of the difficulties that we face in life. And uh, you know, I want you to just think about where they come from. You know, I mean, don't we want life to be easy, Right? We want life to be easier, easier than it is, don't we? I mean, we want children to raise themselves, right? We want diapers that don't smell. Uh, we want roads that are empty, uh, even though everybody else pays for them. We want work uh, that's always successful. We want homes that are self-cleaning. We want peaceful relationships, especially around the holidays. Uh, we want successful marriages, often with our spouse agreeing with us that we're right. We want abundant food without any weight gain. And obviously those things don't exist. And, you know, I think we've all learned that by now. But we don't have those things. And there are genuine difficulties that we look at in in, in life. Everywhere we look, there are challenges from difficult relationships uh, to unemployment to financial loss. Uh, There's too little time to do too many things. We suffer sickness We lose loved ones, Uh, people are abused and mistreated, and one day we will die. And life in this world is is not life in a paradise, and we know that, we experience that. And so what went wrong, and why does life have these difficulties? That's where our passage is pointing us to. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at Adam and Eve, and we've seen um, how God created this, this wonderful world. And then he took Adam, and he placed him in the garden with work to do, and then he gave him a perfect partner. And he gave him one rule, Adam and his partner, and that rule was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we saw over the last couple weeks how they ate that fruit, the fruit from that tree, and we saw how sin came into into the world, sin together with guilt and with shame. I mean, there really is no question that sin is in the world. In fact, if you were to take a, a scientific experiment, it's probably the most scientifically verifiable thing that the Bible talks about, right? You know, we have experienced sin against us and probably sin in us over this last week. And every culture deals with the reality of, of sin and evil. And so Adam and Eve eating the fruit was one of the t- most significant events in all history. Top five, probably top three for sure. And that's because the introduction of sin affected everything. And that's what we're going to see in today's passage in Genesis chapter 3. The introduction of sin affects our relationships. It affects um, the whole world. And we see a world that's full of difficulties. And not just small ones, but big ones. Maybe you're even facing them today. Massive disruptions, broken hearts, and wrecked lives. And today we're going to see the consequence of sin coming into the world for us and the people around us. Life in this world is not a paradise, but it's not a hell either. Because despite our problems, that life in this world has enormous 
goodness and grace if we have eyes to see past the problems, past to, past to see our difficulties and see what is it that God is doing behind the scenes. And the illustration I'll use at the end is like a blanket. You know, we see this blanket of problem, but where's the thread of God's grace? Where's the thread of God's grace when we experience sickness, lost, oppression, abuse, suffering, persecution, and death? See, that's what we need to see. We need to see that thread. We need to see what God is doing, God's grace in the middle of great suffering. And that's a hope to hold on to. So let's look at our passage today because we see the consequences of sin are hard, but God's grace is greater. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 14. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Genesis three fourteen through the end of the chapter. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the garden from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaring, flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. May I blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, just as we do face the difficulties of this life, Father, we just do pray you'd help us to understand them well, that we would gear our expectations around them. Father, understand what life is like in the middle of a sinful, fallen world. But also, God, bigger than that, more importantly than that, to see your grace. Father, we all face different difficulties, some great, some small, but we all face them. And so we pray, God, for the grace to understand and the grace to apply your word to where we live. We ask you for help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we want to look at five consequences of, of sin coming into the world. Um, all five consequences start with D. You can see if you have the, the bulletin with you, there, there are fill in the blanks. I uh, do that every once in a while. I was able to do that. But the first three D words are difficulty. So I shifted a different word that time. But we're going to look at three difficulties and then, and then two other consequences of sin coming into the world. The first D uh, that we see is difficulty in life. Difficulty in life. Now, before God speaks to Adam and Eve, he speaks to the serpent. You know, he, he 
spoke to Adam when uh, he confronted Adam hiding in the garden, and then he spoke to Eve. So Adam blamed Eve, and then Eve pointed the devil, and so now he's come to the devil, the serpent, and he, God is going to speak to the serpent and pronounce his curse upon him. Now Satan had introduced um, sin to Adam and Eve. He's the one who brought into question God's lordship over their, over their lives. He suggested to Adam and Eve that they could be their own bosses, and he single-handedly in this way worked to undermine uh, their trust in God's goodness. And so in light of Satan's temptation being this, what does God say to Satan? Well, he speaks to him and he humbles him. He humbles Satan. We can see this in Genesis 3.14. Uh, when we read that the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, just for the record, in case you were wondering, no one ever thought that snakes used to have legs, but now they don't. It's, It's not the point of it. But there's a recognition that this is a symbolic statement where God uh, is pointing to the absolute grotesqueness of sin and the absolute grotesqueness of Satan. And he's humbling Satan in in a permanent way. See, he says here that Satan is cursed above all of the other animals inside of God's creation. Well, Satan wasn't an animal, but he was created. He was a created angel, created higher than the animals. Um, he's created as a ministering spirit. Satan had special responsibility. He was created as, a, as, again, a ministering angel. You know, but Satan, by, by coming against God, by bringing sin and temptation into Adam and Eve's life, I mean, he set those things aside. He set up his glorious role, and he took a lower role. And so God recognizes that. He made himself lower than even the animals. The animals do what they're supposed to do, but, but Satan didn't. And so God has, puts them in his place, if you will, below the animals. As one who had not done the thing he was called to do and to be a ministering angel. And so he really becomes loathsome. Now, I don't know, is anybody here afraid of snakes? Anybody here afraid of snakes? I see a lot of hands going up and being afraid of snakes. Now, now I love snakes when they're behind glass. And I love snakes if I know that they're there. Those things are okay. The one time I don't like snakes is when they surprise you. And there's just something about it which just creeps me out. So I don't know if you've ever been running in the woods. You go running and you're going down trees or, or going down the path through trees and you're running over what you think is a stick. And then suddenly it moves. I mean, that will send you jumping like nothing you've ever seen. Or one time, my uh, family and I were walking in the Colorado mountains. And I was going down a trail. I rounded a corner, and then right in front of me, what do you hear? This, this rattle right in front of you. And, you know, what did I do? It didn't matter what bushes or cactuses was around. I was jumping down that mountain, get away from this rattlesnake, which suddenly appeared. Or some of you were at my house recently. We had an open house um, where we invited, uh, the congregation was invited over. I think we had some 90 people over. And the youth were playing a nice game of volleyball over on the side of the yard. And then I had reports. Dad, Dad, there's a copperhead going through the volleyball court. And so um, this snake had bitten my dog just a bit ago, a week ago. We didn't know where it was. And so I said, well, what am I going to do? I went and got a shovel. You know, I thought maybe I should scoop it and throw it in the woods or, or maybe I should do something else with it. I don't know. But 
The decision was made when behind me I'm hearing this, kill it, Sean, kill it, kill it. Uh, you know, the, the, the anxiety that was coming out with the uh, snakes there, um, you know, it was, it was palpable. Anyways, you know, a lot of us are like Indiana Jones in this way. Uh, we hate snakes. And, you know, I think that, that human fear that we have of snakes grows out of the curse. I mean, it's a small picture of God's disdain for sin. You know, Satan is an enemy. Snakes aren't an enemy, but Satan is an enemy. He's a threat. He's sneaky. And we, intellect, we in, instinctually dislike him, or at least we, we should. And so Satan is, is cursed. He will never rise to his former position again. He will never be one of God's greatest angels, but he's going to be in the dust of life for the rest of his existence. Whatever he eats will be like gravel in his mouth, that his ultimate desires will not be fulfilled. He could have shared in God's glory of one of God's angels. He could have enjoyed God's presence, but he rejected God. He worked against him, and so God cast him out of his former glory. Now verse 15 goes on to show that God did more than just humble uh, Satan. He also shows the conflict that Satan is going to have with human beings the rest of his existence. God is speaking to Satan about a, a conflicted future, but he also speaks about a conflicted future that we're going to face, and that's where our difficulty in life often comes in. It's a conflict that he's going to lose, but it engages us. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now here, this is a picture of the first gospel. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. But it's also a picture of b- between those, um, the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In other words, those who, who want to worship, those who, who, who have been redeemed by God, those who have been restored to him, those who have been brought part of his people, and those who are opposed to God and everything that he stands for. The seed of the woman, those who follow God by faith, and the seed of the serpent, those who reject the lordship of God. It's a conflict that's given to us is a conflict that we're going to see worked out through uh, the rest of Scripture, and especially in our next chapter, in, G- in Genesis chapter 4. But you see, there's conflict if you want to follow God. You know, one important point of application is that you're always going to face conflict if you want to lead a godly life. You know, the opposition to godliness is an opposition that comes from Satan himself. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we know that our, that our spiritual life will not be simple, but it has opposition and trials. Even Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter kinds, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's going to be an opposition if you want to live a godly life. And the key to addressing that difficulty is the encouragement that we take from God and from other believers. I mean, we need brothers and sisters to encourage us in our faith. You know, we realize that in many places, many most places in this world, we will not find encouragement. Looking for that seed of the woman to help us remain steadfast against those who would want to speak ill of faith in Christ. We need to be careful to surround ourselves with people who remind us to walk with Christ and to live and to hope. We also take hope that in the end that God will deliver us. 
So first is a dif difficulty in life. That's our first fill in the blank. The second fill in the blank, number two, is difficulty in labor. Difficulty in labor, we see this in verses 16 through 20. After he speaks to the devil, the Lord speaks to the woman, and then he, he speaks with the man. And if you notice, that God deals with them in specific areas uh, related to their primary calling. He, he deals with the woman in, in bearing children, and he speaks to the man in terms of his own work in the garden. What we see in this is the natural things that God has given us to do now become more difficult and become more painful. If you have a Bible, um, a paper Bible in front of you, you might under, underline the word pain. I think you see it three times in this passage. Twice with the woman and once with the man. Verses 16 and 17. You know, it's repeated. It's, it's something that's important. And it gives a real sense of what Adam and Eve are dealing with now. And we know our jobs aren't easy. We know pregnancy and delivery aren't easy. You know, there, there are risks to all of them. You know, these things are in part the consequence of sin in our world. You can see what he says to the woman in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. You know, this level of pain in childbirth was something new. It was a degree that she would not experience if they wouldn't have sinned. And that pain goes deeper than just the physical pain of delivery. There's also the emotional pain that she sees her children suffer. Remember in verse 15, you see that, that the Satan was said, you shall strike the seed of the woman. You shall strike his heel. She's going to see her children suffer. Right? We could look forward one chapter to Genesis chapter 4. And we see one of her children kill another. You know, that pain goes on over generations, that loss. We know even the Mary, of, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she will see her own son put to death on a cross. We see uh, that spoken about in Luke chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. So even today, women deal with miscarriage, loss of children, and the pain of it all. They experience it in a way that, that men don't experience it simply because for a period of time they are carrying that child within them. What a gift, even with the pain that's there. Now, God's word to the man showed that he will also experience pain. You can look at verses 17 through 19. To Adam, he says, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the day of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust... You shall, and to dust you shall return. And so the result of his choice is sin. God tells Adam that his work is going to be difficult. The ground is cursed. In other words, his labor becomes more laborious. And if you've ever wondered why it's so difficult to find success in your work that you do, the opposition that you face, the thorns in your garden, uh, and even the difficulty that you have with yourself on Monday morning, you can thank the curse. It affects all of us. We need to work, but it's going to be hard. Work can be rewarding, but it's going to be difficult. And it's something that can be fixed in our life. In fact, part of when we do uh, funerals, we recognize it's our rest from our painful labor. One of the big consequences of the fall, in addition, is our changed view of work and our new belief that we can gain significance through our work. It's the belief that we can live autonomous lives, separate from God and through our work. 
And yet, the pain of work often reminds us, you'll never get your significance in this. The difficulty of it says, don't look for it here, look for it in the Lord. You know, work needs to be a way that we serve God, not alienate ourselves from God. And so, the writer of Ecclesiastes warns about this, that it, that it shouldn't be that way, if you look at Ecclesiastes. And this way, that pain is a reminder to us not to find our hope in work apart from God, but to find it only in God himself. Work and children are good things, but they're not everything. They're good things, but they're not ultimate things inside of our life. And the pain that we experience reminds us that something is horribly wrong in the world, that the world won't satisfy us, but we need God to make it right again. All right, so that's difficulty in labor. Secondly, and the third thing that we see, the third area of difficulty is the difficulty in relationships. We see that in verse 16, the difficulty in relationships. Especially going to focus on Genesis 3.16 at the end, where he says to the woman, God says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. You know, this is a statement of the conflict that Adam and Eve are going to have now in their marriage. It's a conflict that men and women have experienced through the ages. Instead of married couples being one flesh, united in spirit and in purpose, their interests get divided from one another. Instead of complementing each other, they're in tension with one another, with each one trying to have control over the other. Now, this expression, if you look at uh, verse 16, where it says, your desire shall be contrary, you know, sometimes uh, translators have difficulty translating it. Well, what exactly does this mean? And most of them find a lot of help if they just flip forward one chapter to Genesis 4-7. In Genesis 4-7, it uses the same phrase, the same idea of being contrary to. Genesis 4-7, God is speaking to Cain. Cain's angry. He's upset at this point. He's about ready to murder his brother. But God uh, speaks to him, and he gives him a warning. And this is what he says. He says, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. So you see the threat. You see the risk. What's ready to devour him? And then notice what he says this. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So it's that same words, the idea of being contrary to. Sin is ready to devour, it's contrary to you. And those same sort of words, that same sort of idea is communicated if we jump back to Genesis 3.16. Sin wanted to dominate Cain. And Eve is going to want to rule over her husband. She's going to want to take charge. She's no longer safe to the relationship. It creates a conflict even within her because she's been created to be a helper. She needs its leadership, but she's going to resent it. And fight him on it. And so in Genesis 3.16, we see the reality that in the end, even this desire to rule won't work out. Because we see the end of Genesis 3.16, it says, he shall rule over you. Not only will her new sinful tendencies to rule in the relationship be denied, but she may experience the harsh rule of her husband. He's no longer safe either. Remember, this is supposed to be a complementarian relationship. They're both of equal value before the Lord. Both had different responsibilities. Both were given different gifts. They were to be one flesh to one another, and they were able to be vulnerable without any shame. And now they have a relationship of conflict, one upmanship, of abuse, even of suspicion. The gift of God has been lost under piles of personal sin. So as we look at our own marriage, you know, it shouldn't be any surprise that we're going to have conflict inside of our marriage. You know, it's inevitable in a fallen world that you're going to have to work things through. 
Did you expect a perfect relationship? I mean, you know, that that wasn't going to happen, right? You know, you're a sinner. You're married to another sinner. So there's a call to be patient. You know, some people want to wait inside of what wait for marriage and wait and wait and wait until they find that perfect spouse. Well, that's not going to happen. There is no perfect spouse. They're a sinner and you're a sinner. So the, the best thing to do is to, to, you know, as you find someone that as you're called to marry to, so make a choice to marry them and to love them, and deny yourself and to live for another person. So just because things are difficult doesn't mean that you can't work it through. Things can improve. Sometimes people leave a marriage thinking that they'll find someone better only to realize that they've got involved with, guess what, another sinner. More than that, they bring their own sin with them. And that's why many people have the same conflicts from relationship to relationship. That's why many people who divorce once will divorce again because their expectations are off. What did they expect? Well, who needs to change? I mean, it's us that needs to change. And what needs to change? Our expectations need to change. You know, marriage is about serving others, but we've made it about serving ourselves. That's why Jesus Christ is so essential to marriage. We're not going to have time to go into it, but you can read passages like Ephesians 5 or go back to God's model in Genesis chapter 2. Because apart from the humility that Jesus Christ brings and the forgiveness that he brings and the hope that he brings, we're bound to end up with conflict with one another. And and often, as we see here, you know, an irresolvable conflict that has to be resolved by grace and the grace that Jesus Christ brings. All right, so those are our three difficulties. We see difficulty in life. We have conflict with each other. Uh, we have uh, with others who, who, who don't believe the same thing. We have uh, difficulty in our labor. Our, our work is hard. We have difficulty in relationships. Um, marriage is hard. And we go to our fourth consequence of sin coming in the world. We see death and distance from God. Death and distance from God. Two deeds there, but they're related to each other. God warned Adam that if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he would surely die. And if you look in Genesis 3, 19, we see that his warning is fulfilled. Verse 19, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and a dust you shall return. And because of Adam's sin, death has become an inevitability for all of his descendants. First Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 tells us, For as by a man came death, By man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So as much as we may want to avoid death or or not to think about it, you know, death is an inevitability. Ecclesiastes 3.20 says, all go to one place. All are from the dust and the dust will return. And people don't often like to talk about it, but it's something we need to think about. I remember even as a pastor, I remember at a college retreat, the college students are at retreat this, this time, and I, you know, I had people think ahead to maybe your funeral, the time that you're going to die, and who's going to be there, or some question like that. And, and I just remember one particular young lady looking at me with a very strange face, like, why would you have us think about our death? Well, it is an inevitability. I mean, it is something that's going to happen. It's something that's, you know, that's worth considering. Now, we're not talking, when we talk about death, we're not just talking about physical death, though, because we're talking about another death which is very significant, it's spiritual death. And in this case, his spiritual death is seen in the way he's driven out of the presence of God, right? He's driven out of the garden. 
We see death and distance connected, spiritual death, and this distance from God being there. Genesis 3.22 says, uh, God said this, he said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So after eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God permanently drives him out. Adam loses that face-to-face relationship with God. Adam loses the safety and security of God's gracious provision for him. And ever since his time, the whole human race has been in the wilderness. Right? Mankind has been driven from his home in spiritual separation from God. And so death is a reality that we need to consider. A spiritual death of being distant from God, but also our physical death. We need to consider that distance that we have. Are you putting off thinking about these things? You know, we don't need to be morbid as we, or morbidly fascinated with death, but we need to plan for its reality, especially in the judgment that is after death. You know, we can't think that somehow we will avoid it. Or have you even now, even as young as you are, started thinking that you would meet God face to face? I hope so. Because he will judge you, he will judge your sin, and unless you have a savior, there is no hope of entering into that rest that he has in the future. There's a distance, and it needs to be dealt with before death. And that leads to our fifth consequence, our first fifth consequence. And now this, this is a good one, right? So we've seen you know, difficulties in life, difficulties in labor, difficulties in relationship, death, and distance from God. Our fifth consequence is deliverance. That's what I want to talk about today. Because the consequence of sin entering into the world is God set a plan of deliverance for his people. And so for all this bad stuff that we see here, we see a thread of God's grace. Remember I talked about that blanket at the beginning. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff. It's pretty dark here. But, you know, sometimes, you know, if you have a blanket or something you're doing, you could have this thread which stands out from the rest. And I think that's what we're going to look at, that thread that stands up from the rest, that stands in contrast to the rest, and it shows what God is doing. The first thing we want to look at is what God said to Satan, again, back in Genesis 3.15. Remember, he says this, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know, some people might ask, when is the first time that, that Jesus shows up in the Bible? And, and I would point to this verse. When is the first time that Jesus shows up? You know, I think that God makes a point right here at the beginning, right here after the fall of sin, that is that the fall of Adam and Eve and the first sin, that Jesus Christ is going to come into the world to bridge the gap, to bridge the distance between man and God. Sometimes this passage is called the first gospel, right? The promise of Jesus Christ who's come. Because who is that seed of the woman? Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. Jesus Christ was bruised in his death upon the cross, and Jesus Christ would crush the head of the serpent as he paid the penalty of sin, and he rose from the dead. Galatians 3.16 speaks about Jesus being the seed of Abraham. It's a descendant of Abraham, and in the same way, he was a descendant of Adam and Eve. He was a descendant who would give all who believe in him victory over the devil. Because you see, Jesus' victory on the cross is not just his, but he comes a victory for, for the whole church of Christ. Look at Galatians, uh, Romans 16.20. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The great accuser, 
the great tempter, the one who brings your sin back to you over and over, the one who says you can never be forgiven, the one who says they'll never follow God, his head is crushed under the heels of the seed of the woman, under Jesus Christ. And we, through him and our union with him, get to experience the joy of that victory as well, right? So as you see sin in the world, as you see evil in it, as you uh, see maybe even the evil of your own heart, these things frustrate us. But we remember that God has declared victory over the serpent. Jesus Christ conquered him in his death on the cross. You know, Satan thought that he could put you forever under sin and judgment. But Jesus Christ bore that judgment upon himself. So the serpent's lie would be destroyed. That Satan would be destroyed ultimately in the lake of fire. Satan thought he would win as he saw Jesus Christ hanging there on the cross. Thought that he'd won. Thought that he had defeated the Son of God. But three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. In that one miracle, that one victory, he defeated Satan and his plans. What grace, what grace we've been shown. What grace God has, has demonstrated the world. You know, I remember running one day. I was on another run. It was another snake story. I was on a run, and I, was, I, was, I ran about a mile and a half, and I, I turned around to go home. And on the way home, I noticed the path was a little bit different. I was running on a road at the time. And what was there on the road? But there was a snake. But this one was different. In this case, a car had run over the head of the snake. Its whole body was there, but, it, but its head would have been there crushed by uh, some cars. So it wasn't there when I ran by the first time, but it was, was there when I ran by on the other side. And I thought, what a, what, what a picture of what God is doing, right? You know, I didn't even know he was there. Sometimes we don't even know the temptations or sin that we're facing, you know, and that we come and we see, wow, look at the victory that God has done in defeating the accuser, the one who wants to devour us. Saying, well, God will crush the head of the serpent. There's more deliverance that we see in this passage. If you look at verse 21, we see deliverance in the way that God covered Adam and Eve's sin. And we talked about this a little last week. We talked about God covering his shame. But let's remember what happens here. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So instead of their man-made fig leaf coverings, uh, their self-righteous coverings, God clothed them with the clothing that he provided. Now what was required for him to provide those garments? It required the death of an animal. God shed the blood of an animal to provide this clothing. You know, the, the, the biblical marker of the forgiveness of sin is through the shedding of blood to cover that sin. And here God did it. And by his grace, he covers Adam and Eve's sin. This is a God-fashioned outfit, right? He's the great fashion designer, not for some runway in Paris or something like that, but something which, which he was the observer and the one who enjoyed it. He clothed them with his love. He clothed them in grace. It was a pointer to what Adam really needed. He needed a savior to die in his place, to take away the curse, and to clothe him in his righteousness. Remember, Jesus died to take away the curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How did he become a curse? For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. And he gave us his own robes of righteousness. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So we see the deliverance of Christ in, in crushing the head of the serpent, in clothing us in his righteousness. There's still one more place, and it's a deliverance that comes in hope. 
A deliverance that, that comes from despair. Remember the warning when God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? If they did, they would surely die. If they did, there was no hope of children. The human race would go extinct. But here we see hope, not just for the present, but for the future. The human race would not go extinct. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. You notice the faith here. Adam names his wife Eve, even though she hadn't had any children yet. Right? The Hebrew word for Eve sounds like the word life giver. He names Eve in anticipation of the life that she is going to bring in the world. There was hope for the future, and he believed it by faith. So as, as, as I begin to wrap up, I, I want us to think, though, after looking at those five consequences about Adam and Eve being removed from the garden. Because ever since that day, the you know, desire of every human person has to be back in the garden. It has to be back in, in a paradise. But because of sin, we don't want to do it God's way. There may be a desire for a garden. There may be a desire for a paradise. But, but, but people want it in sin without God being there. And so the history of the world is people trying to, to make this world a paradise, but without repentance, without faith, without living in submission to God. I mean, we've tried to create a garden of our own. I mean, it happens with the great philosophers of the world or the great, the great political movements. They have been to create some utopia, some paradise on earth. But there cannot be a paradise on earth without God. The problems of the world come because of sin. We need to be reconciled with God. There's no paradise without reconciliation with God. But it's the same for our own truth. You know, do you think we're going to create a paradise without God? Do we think we're going to create a garden of our own making without the, the obedience of faith with him? It just doesn't happen. You know, the garden was the garden because God was in the garden. Game that restore that relationship. He came to, to, to bring us back into eternal life. He brought us, came to bring us back into paradise because he came back to bring us into a relationship with his father. Now, how did he have to do it? Just think about it for a minute. He actually, you know, Adam and Eve, they were, they were removed from the garden, from the presence of God in the wilderness. What did Jesus do? Jesus willingly went from the presence of God in the wilderness, right? We're going to celebrate it at Advent, Christmas, Jesus Christ leaving heaven to come to be among us. We can remember it in his temptations. Jesus left the city. He went fast for 40 days to face the temptation of the devil in the wilderness. And we can even read in a passage like Hebrews 13, 12, that Jesus Christ was crucified outside of the city. Why crucified outside the city? He had to go out to those who are in the wilderness, those who are in their sin, those who are looking for redemption, those who want to come in to the city of God. He had to go out to get them and to bring them back into See, that's Jesus' work. He goes down the wilderness to bring us back. Or in John 14, verses 2 and 3, he says this. Now, this is one of our fighter verses. You know, we post our fighter verses in the, in the bulletin every week for you to encourage, to meditate on, memorize, and think about. And this one came up to me because I was thinking about this. Light of the garden. As it was my memory verse this last week. He says this. In my father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You see what's happening? Jesus is bringing us back into that presence of God. The very thing that Adam lost is the thing that Christ came to restore. Another thing that strikes me as I look at Adam's decision is how he was able to make his own decisions 
how he was able to exercise his free will, but in the end, he was not able to choose his consequences. Think about that. He was able to make his decisions, but he could not choose his consequences. And it's the same with us, right? We make so many decisions, but we don't choose the consequences of our decisions. And so you might be frustrated with the decisions you've made, and you realize the consequences of your decisions are too much for you to bear. Your life can become a mess of bad consequences as a result of bad decisions. What do you do then? Again, you look for the threat of God's grace. You remember that not all is lost. Remember how God showed Adam um, grace here in the garden, and he'll show you grace also. If you humble yourself, if you look to Christ by faith, if you endeavor to believe in him and, and serve him by faith in the future, there is grace that is available through the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins can be forgiven. You can, you can find new hope. You can come back in the presence of God. How does that happen? How do we come back in the presence of God? Remember what Jesus said after he talked about those rooms. When he said this, he said, I am the way. John 14, 6. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is that way back to God. He brings us into God's presence. And when we find God's rule, we find eternal life and the promise of glory. Receive him, believe in him, and come into God's presence again. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we'd ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for the way that we want to be restored to the garden, but not in the path that you have for us that we wouldn't be restored to a good life, but not with repentance and faith. God, but you have provided a way. You provided a way through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that, that he is the way. And thank you, God, that he came outside of your presence in order to come and get us and to bring us back, that he's become a bridge for us to eternal life. Because as great as our sins are, God, your grace is greater. And we thank you for that good news. God, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you stand, I have a question for you.